Have you ever had a fantastic experience with healthcare? What about a not so great one? Well, here at the Alenia Life Podcast, we're going to talk about it. The Alenia Life Podcast, a production of the Alenia Collective, exists to be a public resource to you, the listener, who at some point or another has been a patient of this crazy thing we call the healthcare system. Co-hosts and doctors of physical therapy, William Mills and Joey Rosie, interview experts in the fields of physical rehabilitation, fitness, and medicine, as well as the athletes and patients on their experiences with the good, the bad, and the ugly of healthcare. I was happy with that one. The topics discussed in this podcast should not be considered medical advice or a means of diagnosis. If you're in need of medical attention or advice, seek a licensed healthcare professional. Conversations in the Alenia Life podcast are intended for adult audiences only, and though we keep most topics professional, there is occasional strong language. I'm hanging out with uh, Mr. James Bollock. Mr. James, I'm going to refer to him as Mr. James because I say Mr. and Mrs. because that's how my mom raised me. We have a lot of um, we have a lot of listeners from around the country, so it's not all Southern people. Um, but Mr. James is my grandpa's, my late grandpa's third cousin. Does that make you his third cousin? And Mr. James, um, Mr. James is a World War II veteran, and he's going to talk about himself. He could do a much better job at introducing himself, but he's a World War II veteran. He was a survivor of the Bataan Death March, um, and then he was a POW for three and a half years after. Um, he and my grandpa were were great friends. My grandpa loved loved talking about you, and uh, whenever, probably whenever I was in the sixth grade. He, that was the first time that he had introduced me to your book. And then I had read your book, and I loved it. And then I decided that I was going to do my 7th grade social studies project on your story. And then um, my grandpa talked you in to come and talk to our class. Do you remember that? That was a long time ago. That was back when I was... That was probably in 2005. And then you would come and talk to our high school class as well. Um, so I've always, I've always wanted to get you on this, on this podcast, whenever we had uh, decided to start it. And plus, I think we're going to break a world record for oldest member. And how old are you, Mr. James? I'm sorry? How old are you? Uh, 97. 97? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um so we got a 97-year-old on the podcast, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, I'm going to let you just start telling your story, so take it away. I uh, spent nine years in the uh, in the military. Okay. Those are the nine years, six in the, uh, in, the, in the active and three reserves. And of the six active, four were spent overseas during World War II. And uh, as you mentioned, unfortunately, three and a half of those four years as a, a peer of the deputies. Now, I joined the service in uh, 1940, and in 1941 took uh, part in maneuvers that were held in uh, Louisiana, and uh, where we trained with uh, dive bombers. And when the, uh, the maneuvers ended, we were immediately shipped overseas. 
We uh, left San Francisco on uh, November 1st, arrived in the Philippines on November 20th, and 18 days later, we were already at war with Japan. Now, you may remember that Pearl Harbor uh, took place early one Sunday morning, and uh, would you believe that nine and a half hours later, here come the Japanese with their bombers and fighters, and they caught all of our airplanes on the ground, destroying most of them, leaving the few that could still fly. Those took off for Australia, leaving us to fight a war without a single airplane. And uh, when that happened, there was no way to stop the Japanese from making major landings on the uh, island where we were. And uh, when they did, we were all told to evacuate to the uh, Bataan Peninsula, and uh, where we would hold out until uh, relief came. Of course, it never, it never came. Now that we were on the uh, on the peninsula, while well, everybody was on the peninsula, that meant that the army had to feed everyone, and it wasn't long before we uh, ran out of food, and it got so bad near the end that uh, we had to kill and eat. Uh, the uh, Wright's horses, and uh, after we'd eaten those, we had to kill and we killed and ate a few mules, which was uh, all we had. And after that, we were essentially out of uh, we were essentially out of food. And it was about that time that the Japanese added a whole bunch of new seasoned troops to the ones that we'd been fighting. The, the troops had come from. Uh, just taken over Singapore from the British. And when they added those to the front lines, then our line collapsed. And then when that happened, everybody was told to drop back to the tip of the uh, peninsula. And it wasn't until we got there that we were told that the uh, uh, that we were being surrendered. And we were told to destroy all of our arms and ammunition, which is what we did. And then finally, here come the Japanese. They uh, counted us and started us marching out on the only road out. And uh, of course the first things as we started running into the uh, Japanese troops that we'd been fighting for four months, the first thing that they did was uh, they stole everything we had. And uh, after that, uh, since we had nothing more to steal, that's when they began uh, beating on us. They, they beat on us with uh, sabers and clubs and whatever they could get their hands on. And that went on all that first day. And uh, they, even though it went by two or three artesian wells that uh, had good, clean drinking water, they wouldn't let us, uh, they wouldn't let have water, nor did they uh, let us rest. The first night, we did stop. They uh, surrounded us uh, with machine guns, and uh, but didn't give us water, nor did they feed us. But at least we were getting uh, we were getting rest. Mm -hmm. Next day it was just like day one, and uh, maybe worse because now not only were we uh, encountering Japanese uh, ground troops, but also tanks and trucks. Uh, filled with Japanese, and so we were being beaten not only by 
the, the people on the uh, ground, but also people on the uh, on the trucks and tanks. I think it was about the uh, middle of the second day that people began to collapse, either from dehydration or just fatigue or just, just couldn't get anymore. Couldn't go anymore. And it just we got the impression that the Japanese would try to kill us all. So we decided that the next water that we would come to, we would have water, whether they wanted to give it to us or not. So we uh, we rushed the water, and if you were lucky, you got a sip of water and got back on, on the road. But if you were unlucky, you died from uh, Japanese bullets, because the minute we broke line, they started shooting. Now. It took me five and a half days to get to the first prison camp, which is Camp O'Donnell. Now, at night, the Japanese couldn't watch us as closely as they could during the daytime. See, we walked day and night after that first night. And it was at night that we were able to get water. Uh, and uh, without having to walk at night, I don't think we would have made it, because uh, there was no way in the world you could walk five and a half days without uh, with water. You could do it. You could do it without food, but you certainly couldn't do it without water. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody knows exactly how many people died on the uh, on the death march. Uh, numbers vary from six to eight hundred, uh, twice that many. And uh, the only people that would know were the Japanese, because they counted us right before we left, and they know exactly how many people got uh, to that first uh, prison camp. Now. For the first 40 days at, uh, at the prison camp, another 1,800 Americans died. And all we were doing was just uh, burying the dead. We dug big holes that held 15 or 20 bodies and just pitched them in like they were, uh, like they were garbage because uh, they'd all died in dysentery. And if you caught dysentery, you were going to die. There's, there's no doubt about it. So how, how many miles was it from the first to Camp O'Donnell? I was with the first group. They they sent us out in groups of 200. And the first group walked the whole way, which was a little over 100 miles, about 102 or 3 miles. Now it was going so slow, later on they marched the guys to about 65 miles, put them on boxcars, rode another 30, 35 miles, and then after that, another probably or 10 miles to the camp. But the first group that I was on, uh, we walked the whole way, which is a little over 100 miles. After, uh, of course, we were still, even after getting to the camp, we were still starving because the Japanese gave us um, nothing but uh, dry cooked rice. And we didn't get it every day because they didn't have enough facilities to cook for everybody. And then uh, they stopped uh, for a while. They stopped giving us rice. They were feeding us boiled sweet potato vines. And then they tried to feed us uh, carrot tops, which was so bitter we just couldn't eat them. They just wouldn't stay down. But luckily I got pulled off of the uh, bridge, uh, burial detail and went on a bridge detail and I stayed away for about uh, two or three months. And then when I, when I went back to camp, instead of going back to the first camp, Camp O'Donnell, they had shut it down. 
and opened up another camp called Camp Cabana Tawan, which is where the uh, POWs from Corregidor uh, were sent uh, after Corregidor fell. Now Corregidor lasted about a month longer than uh, the Bataan. Is Corregidor also in the Philippines? I'm sorry? Was Corregidor also in the Philippines? Yes, it, it's only about four or five miles from the tip end of Bataan. Okay. It's right at the, it's right at the mouth of uh, Manila Bay. Okay. And, uh, and it wasn't long after that that I was selected with a group of about, uh, I think they were a group of 2,000. They took us to Manila and they put us on a ship with a thousand, I mean 500 in the first in front and 500, I mean five, yeah, 500 in the back. And they, and they took off. And, uh, but unfortunately, and they would only let, uh, after we took off, they would only let two guys out of the hole at a time to use the uh, facilities that were on top side. But at night they closed the hole, it was pitch dark, and those poor guys with dysentery, I'm sure you know what dysentery is. There's no way in the world it, you can go all night long. Explain it for, explain it for yeah, the listeners. It's a horrible disease and you almost have, you almost have to be sitting on a, uh, you know, at the latrine. So and they, they were not they only would have diarrhea. They were not only messing themselves, but also the guys around them. And at night, uh, there, there was screaming, there was cursing, there was praying. It was unbelievable. To me, that boat ride was the worst part of my whole uh, experience as BOW. Yeah. Uh, it got so bad that uh, they took that they, they stopped at Taiwan took us off the ship and uh, hosed us down and they also hosed out the uh, the ship and then when we got back on they, they took off and right now then it was getting cold because this was uh, probably October and unfortunately I came down with a uh, with pneumonia and had that ship Lasted one more day. If we'd been on that ship one more day, I, I don't think I'd have made it. I, I was flat out. I, I absolutely couldn't move. And there were about uh, 80 or 90 of us in that uh, same shape when the ship uh, landed. We'd been on it for 32 days. And uh, the, the guys that could, strong enough to get out of the uh, hole, took off, and uh, then the Japanese came, lifted us out of the hole, and uh, took us to a, an army base there at uh, Pusan, Korea. Instead of going to Japan, like we were told, we ended in Pusan, Korea. Of the uh, 85 or 90, there were only about 35 of us that uh, survived. We just got to finally got well enough to where we could walk and then they, they put us on the train that uh, took us to uh, Bogdan Manchuria where the rest of the, the guys had gone. And there was, there you said there was 200, 200 POWs on the boat to begin with whenever y'all originally got shipped to there Korea? Were, there were five, there were a thousand on the boat to there begin with. There was a with. thousand? Yeah, 500 in front, 500 in the back. And, uh, there were a lot of them that died, and in the morning, a lot of times when they would uh, open up the uh, the hole, uh, the, the hatch of the hole, we'd hand out uh, dead bodies because uh, uh, a lot of them just, uh, just 
couldn't make it. I, I should mention too that on the third, about the third day out, we were attacked by a, uh, what I thought at first was the uh, American Navy, mm -hmm. because all of a sudden the, the ship made a sort turn to the right, and the, you could hear the Japanese running and screaming on top side, and then I, you could feel explosions in the water that, that were really rocking the uh, the ship that we were on. And I was kind of hoping that the, uh, if it was the Navy, that they would sink the ship, even though I might go down, but I figured there might be a, a possibility that I could, I could get out and get picked up by the, uh, by the American Navy. You were, you were but hoping that instead of being that... the Navy, it happened to be an American submarine mm -hmm. that shot two torpedoes at us. But and luckily, the early torpedoes that we had weren't very good. Yeah. And uh, they missed us, and so that would, uh, they, we were lucky as far as, uh, as far as I went. Yeah. At that point, whenever you were on the ship, did you feel like you were going to have a better chance of surviving if the ship capsized and you, like, swam out of it because it was that bad on the ship? That, to me, at that night, after that, uh, after that uh, attack, and we found out what it was, I figured that that submarine wasn't going to leave us. I figured it was going to follow us and wait until the night and then get real close and really sink us. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I spent most of the night just waiting for it. And I, I figured, uh, you know, I might, I might not make it, but uh, there was a possibility that uh, I might be able to get off the ship. And, yeah, that was... That would too old to the whole war. I would I would say that night was one of the worst. But anyway, uh, finally wound up in the Mugden Manch area, where we worked on the they had us working in factories and mines and, and things like that. But at least we were getting fed uh, a lot better. When I when I arrived in the in Mugden, I was weighed, and the Japanese had uh, taken away clothes that we'd worn for. Seven months, same clothes, and they'd given us uh, new Japanese uh, uniforms to wear and shoes. I weighed 92 pounds, and uh, and it, I probably it took me another six, seven, or eight months to get strong enough to where they sent me to work. How but much then, did you weigh? How much did you weigh before the war? About 160, 165. Yeah. They. Uh, but the food was a lot better. In fact, in the morning we got a uh, cup full of uh, cornmeal mush, mm -hmm. and then uh, we got the noon meal was a uh, soybean soup, and then at night when we came in we had uh, soybean soup, and we worked uh, just about every day except once in a while it'd be a Japanese holiday that uh, we would uh, get off, and that went on. It just seemed like the war would never end. But uh, one day uh, the sirens went off uh, in the city and uh, the Japanese ran us back to the uh, camp. And we could see a, a big flight of uh, heavy bombers headed, headed in our direction. And the Japanese said there were B-Nijukus, which is B-29s, mm -hmm. airplanes that we had never heard of. But of course we were tickled pink, you know, after all this time, here, some, here comes some friendly uh, some friendly airplanes, but the bad part about it, the 
if Target was right next door to us. Uh, it was an ammunition factory and they blew it sky high. But three of the bombs that they dropped hit our camp. One knocked a big hole in the, uh, in the wall, brick wall around the camp. Another fell right in the middle of us. Uh, immediately, instantly killed uh, 18 POWs and severely wounded another 50 or so. And then the third bomb uh, set one of our back uh, barracks on fire. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine how we felt uh, after waiting so long for, for friendly forces, and now here they are, and uh, and they're killing us. Yeah. But the war finally ended, and uh, but the bad part about it was that Russia didn't go along with it. Now, Russia, instead of going along with it, declared war in Japan. Mm-hmm. So we had to sit through an invasion of the Russians until we, uh, they were the ones that finally got to our camp and they were the ones that uh, finally liberated us. The Russians did? The Russians were. And then uh, we finally, finally gave us the train that took us to uh, a coast off the coast of China. Mm-hmm. There was that ship waiting for us that was going to take us to Okinawa. Yeah, but, but when we got to Okinawa, we got word that there was a typhoon headed right for the island, and every, all the ships pulled out of the harbor, and uh, we're going to ride it out at uh, that sea. Mm-hmm. And all night long, we were in 50-foot seas, man, I mean, it was unbelievable. But then about 4 o'clock in the morning, there was this terrific bang. The lights went out in the ship, and... Uh, Engine, you could tell that the engines had stopped, and and uh, if I thought if you thought it was bad before, it was really bad after that because uh, we were just being tossed around without any power, and uh, if the uh, uh, mine, we hit a mine, we hit a mine during during uh, the uh, typhoon. The mine killed uh, all of the uh, sailors in the engine room. And unfortunately, killed some of the uh, POWs that were on their way home. And uh, but luckily, the ship didn't sink. We got finally pulled into Okinawa. They they put us on air. Yeah, they put us on airplanes that were going to fl- fly us to uh, Manila. Mm-hmm. The uh, seats that we had were in the Bombay section of B-24s. There were just wooden wooden seats, one on each side, and they closed the doors and took off. Now on one of the uh, one of the uh, planes, after it took off, the, for some reason or other, the bomb bay doors opened and sucked out about twenty or thirty POWs on their way home. Mm. And uh, it, it, unbelievable, you know, the poor families had probably already been notified that uh, that they were on their the, way. The, you know, it, the, their people were coming home, but now to go back and tell them yeah. that uh, they weren't after all. But anyway, I uh, I made it all right. Then I was finally put on a ship that took me to San Francisco. I stayed in the hospital there oh, six or eight weeks. Were you still sick at this point? At, uh, in in uh, San Francisco, yeah. So what... How many, how many different 
How many different diseases did you have over the three and a half years? I had, uh, I had, uh, well, first had diarrhea, but uh, this is a story in itself, because uh, right after we got in that first prison camp, we, we got worried that there was a little bush that grew inside of the camp. Yeah. And the word was that that would cure diarrhea or dysentery. Yeah. And I was able to fill up my pockets uh, with those leaves, and um, I I on them for two or three days, and it it stopped my uh, my diarrhea. Oh wow! But then I had uh, I had uh, I had malaria, and I had beriberi, I had pneumonia, and I had scurvy, and I had uh, frozen feet. And, uh, Didn't you have yellow fever? I'm sorry. Didn't you have yellow fever or jaundice at some point? Yeah, I had. Yeah, I had that's right. I had uh, jaundice. Mm -hmm. But uh, finally, then I left Francis, uh, San Francisco and put on a hospital train that took me to uh, uh, San Antonio, and then I stayed in the hospital there for a while until they finally settled. You feel well enough to go home, and I, I said I did. And uh, on the way home, I stopped in Crowley before I went home. To Crowley, Louisiana. Because I hadn't been, uh, I'd been away from home for about four and a half years. Yeah. Without a word from them, because uh, we weren't really born able to uh, uh, write home, or did we receive letters? Uh, and while the uh, while I was there, I decided to get a, a haircut, and I, as I sat in the uh, barber's chair, and the barber began cutting my hair. He began talking about the guys that uh, had been in the war, and some that uh, hadn't gotten back. And then he started talking about this one family that had four boys in the war, and he said uh, he began. He said that uh, he began describing where they were, and it you know. Started thinking that's pretty close to where I live, mm -hmm. and then finally he said that two of them had been killed in Europe. One was a POW, and the other one was still in the Pacific in the Navy, getting ready to invade Japan. Had it uh, had it happened, and right off the bat, I knew that uh, you know that must have been my uh, my family. So I just sat there and never did tell him that I was the uh, I was the POW. But uh, and finally, when I got home, I. My poor family was, uh, you know, just in tears, and I could tell that uh, it wasn't tears uh, because of happiness, because I got home, but mostly tears of uh, knowing that, you know, two of my uh, two of my older brothers weren't coming home. Yeah. And I, uh, I was I was kind of treated like a uh, like a stranger. I, my, I had some younger brothers and sisters that didn't remember me, mm -hmm. nor did I remember them, and my poor family grieving all the time. Uh, it, I, I just had to leave. I just, uh, that was, you know, it was just, just too much. That's why, uh, luckily, I was able to go back to college, and uh, which is what I did. But uh, I never did, uh, even after that, I never did feel home like uh, home was before. And the, and the thing about it, that is what really helped me survive because I kept thinking of the good times we had and, 
and that was what I was going to go back to eventually, but uh, uh, it didn't turn out that way. Yeah. Did um. Did you ever move back home, or did you just go to did, grad school? I'm sorry. Did you ever move back home? Oh no, no. No. Mm-hmm. I I just stayed until uh, until the, uh, the uh, next until the semester started here at. Uh, at uh, back then it was SLI college here in the, in Lafayette because see I had I had three semesters before the war started mm-hmm. and uh, the reason I stayed in the reserve for three more years after I got back was uh, I wasn't quite sure I could uh, go back to college and I figured if I couldn't make it in college then I'd uh, probably stay in the service but I I had no problem uh, going back to uh, going back to school yeah. What, how long did it take you to feel like life was normal again? It or took did it about ever? it took about ten years. The, the The bad thing about it was that in prison camp, all I dreamed about, and probably everybody else, was that uh, I was free. And then I wake up next morning, and of course you're still in that uh, in that darn uh, prison camp. But the bad part about it was that after I got back at night when I went to went to, went to sleep, I dreamed I was back in, in the back in the prison, and uh, in a way that kind of helped me because I didn't I didn't want to go to bed at night while I was in college, and that so I, what I did was I stayed up studying, and uh, so in a way that uh, kind of kept that that kind of helped, uh, but no I. I for about, it took about ten years. Not, I, I still have things that I'm, I'm pretty sure are associated with uh, POW life. One is I have this uh, quite often. I dream that I'm across this big body of water, this ocean. I'm by myself. I'm in the jungle, and I know I have to walk for miles and miles and miles before I get where I want to go. And, I, and in my mind, I, I said, gosh, I thought I did this before. Mm. And then I start walking, and then it, it's so traumatic that it, it wakes me up. <laughs> and then another thing, I've never been able to eat anything uh, in my dreams. The closest it came was uh, within the last couple of months. Most of the time, I get to, it's usually a line, I'm, and I'm, I'm usually the last one there, and there's nothing left in the, you know, in the dishes and stuff like that. But here, the last one I had, I found that uh, there was still food in the um, in some of the dishes. So I took a plate, and I was able to get some food in the plate. And as I walked to find a place to go and eat it, the thing collapsed. It happened to be a paper plate that fell out of my hands and that fell on the ground. So I still have not been able to. And, and I kind of think that has something to do with... Uh, and those are the real uh, the, the two that uh, I have quite often. You've had those. Bad, you've had those your entire those. life. I'm sorry. You've had those your entire life since World War Two. I'm sorry. You've had those dreams your entire life since World War Two. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it, mm. uh, it it it's something I, I think about almost every day. Really, you know, especially when I'm. Sitting down, eating, or relaxing, and you know, I look back and, and I think, uh, gosh, I didn't think that this day would ever ever happen. 
Now what what I prayed for, and I, I think everybody prayed, and uh, what I prayed for was for God to get me out of this mess, let me live for uh, 10 years in freedom, let me die in a clean bed, and then I'd be satisfied. Of course, uh, I've lived a lot longer than 10 years, and, and my, I think my chances of dying in a clean bed are pretty good, but yeah. uh, that's all I prayed for. Ten years of freedom, I'd have been satisfied, because uh, there's nothing worse than uh, losing your freedom. And how, just for a reference, how old were you whenever you were a POW? I was uh, captured when I was 19. Well, let's see, I, 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 I was 24. The war ended on my birthday. Oh, that's a good birthday present. <laughs> I was I was 24 when the war ended, so yeah, I would, uh, yeah about 19, you know, mm. 19, 20, 21, 22 when I was Was there anything that you had done in your life prior that could have prepared you for that? There's no doubt in my, my mind that my early uh, upbringing had a lot to do with my uh, survival because uh, I, I learned to hunt and fish and trap and live outdoors. Uh, gosh, uh, even before I even before I started school, and uh, during the war, every every chance I had when I wasn't up, uh, on duty, I would get my uh, rifle and head up in the, in the mountains and. It wasn't every time I went out that I found something to eat, but invariably, I mean, once in a while, I'd, I'd kill a bird, and uh, I remember the last thing I had was a crow. I mean, I just, I just eat it out there, and uh, and, uh, and when the war ended, I, I was probably in a little better shape than uh, some of the guys because I wasn't getting much extra, but I was getting a little. <clears throat> I even. Uh, they even killed a small pig, but that was more than I could eat, and I brought it into the uh, to the mess hall. And what I really missed, and then it scares me to think about it now, because I think I was hunting, and it was hunting me. It was a big bow constrictor. Mm. I was in a in a steep canyon, and uh, on a dry riverbed. That's about the only way to go through the jungles is on these dry, big you know, boulders in the riverbed. And I had a guy with me. And uh, I was waiting, sitting real quiet, thinking maybe something would show up. And all of a sudden there's some gravel or something kind of came down that uh, was on that side. Uh, and I looked up there and, and, uh, and man, I could, I could see a snake that big, you know, about that much of it, it was real, full of vines and everything and and the guy said what is it I said snake and boy he took off <laughs> he left me with it and it was almost dark and I, I couldn't see the head I, I wanted to kill it and bring it into camp and man that would have been good eating and it finally got to where I figured well I gotta shoot so I shot I shot it in the body and then that just made it uh, it made it take off but that that thing 
was probably hunting like I was hunting. Yeah. And that thing could have fallen on me. A big old buck had slipped it right around me and and I'd be I, toast. I toast. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time I had I didn't I didn't realize that at all. Yeah. So um I feel like a lot of people in today's day and age uh, have seen that movie Unbroken. Did you ever see that movie? No, I read the book. You yeah. read the book? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In your book, you talked about how closer to the end of the war, whenever friendly uh, planes were bombing the camps, mm-hmm. that the Japanese had made y'all go and lay out in the, um, in the yard... Yeah. Um, you didn't talk about that before. Explain explain how that happened. Did that repeat now? The, the question was. Did that did one, that happen? Is, did that happen where they where they laid y'all out in the yard whenever the with the yeah, airplane when, bombers? When, uh, when we uh, when, when we ran back to camp, they wouldn't let us in the camp, and I think the reason for it was that the. Normally they searched us so many times before we ever got into the barracks, but that time they didn't search us. Yeah. And I think they were afraid that we may have had uh, contraband, and that's why they wouldn't let us in the uh, in the barracks, and that's why they made us lay out in the uh, out in the little parade ground. To me, that uh, that was probably the only reason is that uh, they were afraid that we probably had carried a bunch of stuff when uh, we got you know got by or got to the barracks without. Yeah. Without being searched. No, they they searched us. We got up in the morning and they they counted us. We fell out, they counted us. We got to the front gate, they counted us. We got to the factory, they counted us. Got to, got to where we worked, they counted us. And then coming back it was the same same way and uh, Yeah. Um you n- you never met that guy, did you? The guy that wrote Unbroken? No. You no. never met him? Mm-hmm. Do you know if he was in the same camp as you? Uh, no, he was in Japan. He was in Japan? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he was in Japan. Okay. Did you, did you like, make friends with the other guys in the camp? Or what was what was that like? Was it just like you kept to yourself? That's, that, that's a good question, because now when... Uh, when the surrender came, we were told, uh, after, uh, after uh, we were told, you said, now you're on your own, which was the worst thing in the world that ever happened to us. That What we should have done was stay together as a group. Because on the march, during the whole time of the march, during the whole five and a half days, all around a across two of the guys that I knew. I was just walking with, uh, they were Americans, but the, but they were strangers. And if I fell, nobody was gonna pick me up. But if had we stayed as a group, mm-hmm. you know, then I, then I know we would have helped each other. But, uh, and uh, let's see, what was, the, what was the question? Yeah, and but then in prison camp, we weren't allowed to, uh, to mingle with, uh, the only people you knew were with maybe the few that you worked with, and then at night we we were in little uh, compartments, say about the size of this room, with with 
people this that's on people on his side, and they were they were the only people you would uh, you would ever get to know you know during that whole time because we you know we couldn't go from barracks to barracks and, and meet and talk to people and stuff yeah. like that. So we really didn't get to know very many, uh, very many POWs. Did it feel like for that entire three and a half years that you never really had a conversation with someone, like a real conversation, that whole time? I'm, I'm sorry. Did it feel like during that whole time that you were a POW that oh, you never no. really got to have a conversation no. with someone? Mm-hmm. No. We really didn't have time because. When when we got in, we would get our soup. The lights would go off, and we, we, you know, we go to bed. Yeah. Next morning, we get up, get our soup, go to work, stuff like that. I mean, it was just uh, there was no. Uh, like I say, the only time was on a Japanese holiday, which was very rare. That we had the day off, and we might get to, you know, kind of mingle a little, a little more. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, so I remember from your book, you had an excerpt in your book from a journal that you had had whenever you were in solitary confinement. You want to talk about that? About what? Whenever you were in solitary confinement. I hear you. (laughs) (laughs) You were in, you were in solitary confinement for, for how long was that? Uh, about 19 days, I think. Yeah. 19 days. Bread and water every third day. And there was no reason for it. This is what happened. I happened to be at that time working in the uh, factory's uh, yard, lumber yard, mm-hmm. stacking lumber and stuff like that. Yeah. And that morning, <clears throat> as we went to work, we found that the Japanese were having some kind of little maneuvers in our you know, amongst our pile of wood. And uh, we just walked right through them, ignored them, you know, and went to our little shack. And uh, pretty soon, here comes the, uh, I guess, the officer in charge. And he was mad, you know. He apparently thought that you know, we should have, shouldn't have gotten even close to him. But we had, we had to go to work. And uh, he, he chewed us out and had his saber out. and. Uh, he finally left. He didn't, didn't, didn't hit us. And then uh, when he left, we closed the door, and one of the guys kind of laughed. And that uh, that job officer was just waiting for some comment, you know. And he pulled that door open, and he came in, and he started. He lined us up. He started beating on that guy, and I was near the door. He started beating on that guy, beating on that guy. There, I think there were six or seven of us. And I, I saw, well, I'm not going to let that guy beat me. So I, I jumped out, I went out of the building, and I, I hit her kid in the lumber yard. And uh, I thought I'd gotten away with it until that night I, when they called out the numbers of the guys, you know, all their numbers. My number happened to be on it and got, uh, got kind of beat up before I got put in the grunt, uh, in the guardhouse because. Uh, we were all individually uh, uh, questioned once we got into the, uh, the camp. And uh, I remember one of the questions was uh, the interpreter was, the officers, uh, most of them couldn't speak English, all, well, we had an interpreter. 
the interpreter said, do you think the, uh, the Japanese officer had, uh, you know, um, had the right to hit you? I should have said, yes, you know, yes, sir. But I said, well, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. And, <laughs> and I, I, got, I got away with it. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't believe it. And, uh, but I, right off the bat, I figured you know, that could have been a mistake. But a few more questions, and then here comes the same question again. Do you think that Japanese had, you know, had the right to hit you? And I had to, I had to say the same thing. I said, "Well, I, I don't know." And boy, that's what he did into me. <laughs> and uh, threw me in the guardhouse, and uh, threw all of us in the guardhouse. But uh, that's how that's how it happened. And there was, there was no reason, you know, for it at all. Just the fact that we walked to the the uh, the Japanese plain soldier. Yeah. So what did what did you do for the nineteen days that? The 19 days that you were in solitary confinement. Oh, you talk about. <clears throat> you talk. You talk about some long days. That uh, that was that was uh, pretty tough too because you had, well, they got us up at uh, six in the morning and and we stayed supposedly at attention until eleven at night and. Uh, Oh, I don't know what time, uh, sometime during the day, a little dot of light came <laughs> to the uh, to the window. And I, you'd have to watch that dot go all the way across, you know. Mm. And then it would disappear, and you knew there was another four or five hours before it ended every day, every day. And it was, it was maddening, I'll tell you. And uh, there was one of us, one of us to, uh, to a cage. But but uh, the, the, there were cages on two sides of the uh, the guardhouse, and the cages were uh, kind of staggered. In other words, this one, there was one here, and, and across the hall there was one there. But we were able to kind of communicate with each other. You could barely see the guy, you know, right on that side or right on that side. And luckily, we had learned while we were working in the lumberyard. We'd learned the alphabet, uh, you know, signing with by hand. Yeah, and we were able to kind of get our story straight all between us, thinking that eventually there was going to be a uh, some kind of a trial, and uh, we wanted our our story to be uh, be the same. But uh, we finally got. We never. There was never, never a trial, and we finally got term lease because the war was about to, uh, it was about over, and that, that, that's why I got out. Yeah. What What do you What do you think kept you going the whole time? It's It's hard to. It's hard for I think it's hard for people to to wrap their mind around like what you actually went through. Because you talk about it so, like matter of factly, because it's like it's just what it is. It sounds like on your end, it is what it is. Well, you're not the first one that uh, that said that. I, I, I don't, uh, it uh, to a lot of you know a lot of people, even lately, say, "Have you have you? What do you think of the Japanese? Have you, have you forgiven them?" I don't. Some. Say they never will, they ever never will. 
But but I'd say the ones that I should hate, the ones that I fought, that are probably my age, are probably all all dead. So there's nobody left for me to hate. And I and I think the modern. I mean, I think the young Japanese are not at all like their, uh, you know, like their. Uh, their families were, or like the military was, you know, in, in World War II. I, I, I could be wrong, but I, 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 uh, I you know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, talk, I wouldn't talk bad against the Japanese. In fact, of all the speeches I gave, I've given, only once did I notice two Japanese women. And uh, sure enough, after I, after I finished, they came up and uh, they said, "Have you ever? Did you ever run into a uh, any good Japanese?" And I had to say, "No, I hadn't." Not not toward the end. The the guards in in Mugden, Manchuria, were mostly uh, uh, Manchurians. And even though they were in the uh, Japanese army, they, the Manchurians didn't—they uh, didn't like the Japanese uh, any more than we did. Mm. But of course, they—you uh, know—they had to go along with, uh, with, with the orders. You know, with being uh, being a being a soldier. Yeah. <clears throat> so to to kind of either jump to another topic or or tie in all these things with. Um, our typical subject matter for healthcare. What what was your experience as a veteran with the VA after you got home? Do you feel like you've always been taken care of? I I I can't complain at all. Um, When I first got back, uh, I still had bad chest pains, and uh, mm-hmm. that had started while I, while I was in the in prison camp. And uh, even even after all the time I spent in the hospital when I got back, I, I still had uh, real bad chest pains. And they said, "Well, you know, uh, if you still have uh, trouble when you when you get out, just go to the." Uh, See a VA doctor, and you know, see, keep you know, keep going. And uh, so I went, and they started giving me a bunch of uh, vitamin pills, and I have had nothing but uh, you know, excellent treatment ever, ever since. Really, that's good. No, no problem at all. Um, another another topic we talk about is um, how to deal with pain. Mm-hmm. So since you know, since I'm a physical therapist, that's a lot of a lot of my patients that come to see me are in pain one way or another. In all the the different pains that went along with being a prisoner of war, how did, how did you deal with it? Like, if you could give a if you could give a piece of advice to someone who's having some kind of pain, comparatively to what you've experienced. What would you say? Well, during during our the captivity, uh, the only pain was when you got got beaten, mm-hmm. and you see that that only lasted until it until it cured. 
and uh, very, very, the kind of very, very I had was wet, which wasn't wasn't painful. And uh, what what does that do? Hmm? What did it? What did that oh, do? It, your legs and the hands swell up, and and if it if it ever gets to your stomach, and you know it, it, it'll get you. But it's uh, I guess it's mostly liquid. Man, your your legs get about that big, and you know, and uh, but then there's the dry kind where you, you don't see anything wrong at all. It, it is so painful that, uh, but I was lucky I, I had the, the wet kind. And uh, let's see, yeah. the uh, other stuff really was, well, pneumonia, oh gosh, yeah, pneumonia on the ship. <laughs> I forgot about that. When they, when they lifted me out of the ship, I thought I was going to die. I think they thought I was dead because when they when they got me on shore, they literally threw me in the back of a truck, and I think they probably threw me threw me on people that that, that were dead. Because uh, man, I just uh, I, I couldn't even lift a, I couldn't even lift an arm. I was so bad off. And like I say, I'm, I know another day on that ship, and I'd have died. I, yeah. I forgot about that pain. Oof, that was bad. <laughs> But then, uh, while while I was a POW, while I was on the uh, working on the bridge, all this side of my leg went dead on me, and it wasn't painful, but it was just, and it's still, I mean, it's still odd, and it's not smaller than this leg, and uh, I didn't I didn't know what it was, but then, I think a week after I got home, uh, out of the army. My back went out on me, and I come to find out, you know, this is related to yeah, yeah. And uh, I've I've had I've had then uh, finally got so bad the doctor said uh, if I didn't get a back operation I'd lose the use of that leg. So I did have a uh, a back operation, but I've my back has hurt ever since. I mean I I feel my back all the time. So I. I've kind of lived with, uh, and then there were times when I would, uh, I'd, my kids would have to drag me to the, to the bed and cut on my back, you know, gosh, you know, when that back goes out, it is horrible, but I, ex except for the constant pain uh, in the back, I, I've never had a real bad uh, uh, attack here the last six, seven, eight years probably. But but uh, I, I can I can touch this leg and it feel like I can feel the skin, but it, it feel like there's nothing below the skin. It's a real kind of odd feeling. You can't feel the skin on the on the outside of your leg, but you could feel it. No, yourself I can feel touch. it. Seems like I could feel the outside, but I can't feel the inside. Gotcha. It, you know, quite. Quite different from this, yeah. Uh, and it, it's gonna come on my back, according to the. Uh, and then I, you know, I tell the VA doctor that uh, about my back, but he. I mean, it, there's uh, not much you can do. Mm -hmm. So last time I saw you, you said you you're planning on living till 110, 120. Oh no no, I'm I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> mm -mm. <laughs> If I, I, I tell tell all my friends and my, my family that if I 
pass out. That's it. Don't don't call don't call an ambulance. Don't call for a doctor. Just let it happen. That would be nothing worse than to come back as the as a vegetable. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Gosh, I just couldn't I couldn't take that. And, no, I'm. I hope I go like that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to set a record. I'm, I don't know why I live so long. <clears throat> People, you know, they say, "Well, it's, it's probably genes," but in a way, I don't think it is because all of my younger brothers and sisters, they're all dead. It's just uh, the, the oldest that are still alive. They're really. I have one brother and one sister myself, out of nine. That are still living? Of course, my two older brothers were killed in the, killed in the war. Yeah. No, dying, dying is easy. It's, it's trying to stay alive uh, at, at times. It's, it's so tough. Mm. <clears throat> and a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of people decided that, uh, that they just... Uh, couldn't couldn't take it. If, if you didn't want to live, if you didn't have something to live for, you could you could be gone in a couple of weeks. Do you think that mindset is what kept you kept you alive? I'm, I'm sorry. Do you think that mindset is oh, what kept no you alive? No doubt about it. You you had to have something to go back to. And I, I think some of the guys that uh, didn't have anything to go back to, they figured, well, you know, why, you know, had no idea how long, we had no idea how long that we were going to be in prison camp. Could yeah. have been forever if the Japanese won and all that kind of stuff. And you just, I made up my mind, oh, that the hardest part probably was the first three or four months. You know, and I'll never forget, there was a rumor that came out that uh, we were going to be liberated by the 4th of July. And then when it didn't happen, man, I was, died like flies. It just gave up. And, yeah. Uh, but I'd made up my mind that, uh, you know, this this is going to, could be a long, drawn-out affair, which it, it turned out to be. And I was just going to take it day by day. And the main thing was to... See, once we got in prison camp, it wasn't so much that you were going to be killed by the Japanese. What was going to kill you was disease. And uh, and dysentery, boy, if you got dysentery, I, I don't know of a single person that uh, survived dysentery. But you had it. Hmm? But you had it. Uh, I or don't know if it was just diarrhea or high starts. <laughs> okay. But I, yeah, I, I had... I had the runs. If I hadn't stopped it, probably my best my best friend, Barry Pugliuk, I only had two guys that I met on the march. One of them saved, said he saved my life, and I never could understand why until my father, my brother-in-law, son-in-law, asked him. Though know, he's since passed away, he said, "How you know? How did you save uh, Jim's life?" And I remember it. It was during the uh, during the march, at night. For some reason or other, we got kind of got separated, and we ran into two Japanese guards, and they started 
pushing on me, and uh, and and by that time I was <laughs> I wasn't in the shape to be pushed on. I started pushing back, and uh, man, looking back, that was a bad mistake. So and my friend pulled me off, you know. So uh. man, don't do that. And the, the other time was uh, that finally this was probably near the last day I ran across uh, my best friend, and. Uh, that's when we jumped out of the line right near dark because we saw the pool of water ahead. And uh, uh, I, right up to soon as we got there, I, I could see dead bodies. I mean, it smelled. And he, looked, he looked at me and, you know, I thought I said no, and, but he decided to drink. And uh, mm -hmm. he, that was a big mistake because uh, he was dead within six or eight weeks dysentery. But you had kept up with him? Y'all had, had managed to stay together until he passed away at that point? Oh, no. no. I, I, I'd left. Y'all had gotten separated. Mm -hmm. I, I'd left on the bridge detail. Yeah. yeah. I never did. Uh, I, I didn't find out until the war ended that he, that he had died. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> do you have so we're, we're going to start closing up closing uh closing up um do you have any word of advice for someone who i guess would consider giving up on something or is considering giving up on something and quitting what would what would you tell them i, I, I would say that as hard as things may seem, that they, they're gonna, they can be overcome. Now, the chances are within time, you know, things things will improve. It just, uh, just don't give up. I mean, just uh, things most of the time can't get worse. No, just, just, just. Don't give up and don't don't let it um, don't let it kill you because it um, it can. You just have to uh, just have to take it and, and realize that um, things should get better. Yeah, and which normally they do. It's good advice. Is there anything else you want to say? I'm sorry. Is there anything else that you want to say? Uh, no. It. Uh, I, I'm not sure. You know, with with the talks that I give and mm -hmm. the book that I wrote, if people get a, a good idea of, of what really, uh, what it was really all about, what what do you say? Whenever I read that book, yeah, yeah, I, I would say it, it painted a really very accurate and colorful picture it's uh it's a very raw experience do you want to you want to tell people where they could find your book where can people find your book oh it's still available at uh bookstores yeah bookstores and what's it called uh the batan death march the soldier's story by James, is it James J. Bollock? Right. As as the full author name. Okay. 
Yeah. Now, a lot of, I, I don't know if you noticed, uh, as you walk in, I probably have almost a hundred books written mostly by POWs and POW experience, stuff like that. And a lot of them are, uh, you know, they, they, they make up stories that uh, I know good and well there. <laughs> you know, what, what they got away with. The, the Japanese were not all that dumb. You know, they, some of these, here late, the last one I got talked about, uh, this book said that this guy uh, was, he, he worked in the uh, kitchen for the Japanese. Yeah. And he was able, they were gonna have chicken that night for dinner. But there were some crows in the yard and he was able to kill a crow and he, he exchanged the crow for the chicken. Now you know about me that a story like that. You don't think that happened? And he said the Japanese ate and you know Japanese ate crow and he ate chicken. Uh, stuff like that. It, and there's another another book, I mean others where they this this guy uh one of the Japanese kill, one of the guards killed, just talked to him and he 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 could do it. He killed he killed all kinds of guards. And, some of them, some of them are fiction, I'll tell you. Yeah. <clears throat> but I, I tried to be as truthful as I could. I would say it's a pretty, it, it seems like a truthful depiction of it. Yeah, I, uh, in, in fact, uh, some of it I probably could have made a little worse, but, uh, and I, I really wrote it to, to start with for the family. There wasn't, I had no idea of having it, uh, having it published. Yeah. See, the first publisher was a New York publisher, and when the uh, when my contract with them uh, ended, people were still asking for it. So I had some privately printed, and then when those ran out, my wife decided to take one that I had printed and send it to uh, this publisher, and they they picked it up again, and uh, it's been. It's, it's still, still selling. It's mm -hmm. awesome. Can people find it on Amazon? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna put I a think link. Right, I think right now they also have it in ebook. Is that what you call it? E yeah. Ebook. Do <laughs> <laughs> so they? They might also have it in uh, in Audible where someone reads it. Oh, do is you, that right? Do you know if they have it on there as well? I, I don't know. Not sure. Okay. Yeah. No, but uh, we uh, when I went to the uh, this deal every year in New Mexico, they had what they call a Memorial Death March marathon. I've heard about that. And uh, I've gone to the last two. Mm -hmm. And a lot of a lot of the uh, a lot of people bring books to sell, but. I, I, I don't, and I, I brought a whole bunch of uh, cards that I handed out, and if they wanted a book, you know, they could, uh, but uh, I just got a uh, statement from the, uh, from the publisher a few days ago, and I, there wasn't, as far as I can tell, there wasn't more than 10 or 12 that bought books, but in, but in January, they sold forty books for some reason or another, so I, I don't know what uh, you know. But I've, I've since written, I'll put it maybe twelve or thirteen more books, 
the, the publisher has first crack at them, mm. but I, I didn't want to have any more published because what when you when you have a book published, you sign a contract that agree that you agree to go wherever they want to send you for book signings, and you talk about the most boring <laughs> thing in the world. You might they might send you to oh. I think there was a limit of 500 miles from home, something like that. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been sent to places and maybe sold five books, something like that. Yeah. And, and you see, all I get is 10%. And uh, so I was never going to give another book to a publisher. I can make more money self-publishing. I mean, I sell as many books, but at least I have. I get more than 10% when I, when I sell one. Yeah. Mm-mm. Okay. Well, I will put I'll put a link. Whatever link makes you the most, I'll put a link to that whenever we post the podcast. <laughs> no, like uh, my kid said, you know, if if I brought books out there instead of just handing them a card, I I, I know I could sell a bunch of them, but I, mm-hmm. I don't want to I don't want to mess with them. Okay. Mm-mm. All right, Mr. James. Well, I think that's all we got. Well, I hope you got what you want. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast. And I'm I'm going to look in to see if we broke a, wor- a world record. With <laughs> <laughs> the 90, 97. Oh, yeah. if, if you want to beat this, you can take it. Thank you so much for listening. Follow us for more content on Instagram and Facebook at The Alinea Collective and our website, theolineacollective.com. Additional platforms you can download the podcast include iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, or wherever else you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping weekly.